Maddie, thanks for coming on the Neighbors Table podcast. Um, so, Welcome, Maddie. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited. We're excited to hear about what you do and everything. I'm going to set it up real quick. So Neighbors Table podcast, what it is, is it's a podcast that's trying to framework conversation around criminal justice and mass incarceration and just the justice system for the church. So the church can have f ways to fam like familiarize how to engage in these conversations outside of solely just a political perspective. So um, we think that you have a lot for us to learn from. And so I would love to hear your story, hear about what you do and uh, what you're passionate about and what drives you to do all this. So that's Exciting. Yay. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. Um, so yes, my name's Maddie. I'm with the uh, Director of Operations with the Inside Out Network. And we're a nonprofit organization that works to try and connect those who are releasing from incarceration uh, in Oregon, Arizona, Illinois. We just added Mississippi, so all those four states. And try and connect them with different members of the community who want to be supportive in this reentry process. So we just try to connect them with different service providers, everything from housing to uh, employment, education, healthcare, legal assistance. We have nine categories, um, and also including churches and ministries and helping people connect with different congregations in the community that support reentry or welcome those reentering. So that's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. How do you guys do that? Yeah, so individuals are able to create a profile on our platform as early as 11 months prior to release. I would say it typically happens about six months prior to release. Okay. Um, they can create a profile on our platform that's specific to them and their needs and the area in which they are releasing to. And then they're able to connect with providers in those areas. So they create an account. They can then search for help by category. So say someone is looking for housing, they can they have their account created. They can search housing category. They can see whatever is closest to them within a certain mile radius, and they can connect with those providers. Um, on the flip side, providers also create their own profile. So that's a huge component of our platform is that all providers are self-enrolled. They all mm -hmm. have to fill out their own registration and really want to be a part of serving this justice-involved population, which we think makes a huge difference. But in that, they can also see the profiles that have been built by returning citizens, and they can even and proactively reach out if that's something they're wanting and able to do. So that's kind of how it, it starts out. And then on the flip, like if, like what are the other options if people didn't go with something like that? Is it harder for people to get resources and access to those resources? Yeah, so as, as we know that we're probably one of the only platforms that is doing it the way we're doing it. So technically the Inside Out Network is called like a multi-sided platform. And we see very similar platforms if you think about like eBay connecting buyers and sellers or Uber and Lyft connecting riders and drivers, right? You, we see those type of platforms. This is the same thing for re-entry. So it's multi-sided, there's two parties, one offering a service, one seeking that service, and then they're able to acti actively connect. So they can message through our platform with wow. no phone number or email if they don't have it. Uh, they can call, they can access the provider's website, you know, if they're wanting to pursue connection that way. So it definitely helps and it's kind of new and innovative in the fact that it is a live and interactive platform. Of course, there are re-entry, there's a lot of other re like wonderful re-entry resources. There's, you know, a lot of times paper re-entry resource guides or things that the facility tries to give an individual leaving. But we, as far as we know, we're the only one that exists that is connecting people directly in, in real time with re-entry resources in the community. We also have no monitoring component. So there are some resources that will connect individuals uh, with, with other resources in the community. 
but they usually kind of have some type of like monitoring component mm. um, to monitor compliance or to work with parole or something like that. Ours has nothing at all to do with monitoring compliance. It's just to connect with resources. And then what does your partnership look like with like the Department of Corrections and stuff like that? Yeah, so we're very grateful in any state we're in, we first develop a relationship with the Department of Corrections to make sure that they will be willing to enroll people prior to their release. So whenever we take on a new state, we develop that relationship. We usually get some type of like memorandum of understanding or some agreement in place that says, hey, we will register people as early as about six months prior to their release. Um, and at the very minimum register, but hopefully allow them opportunity to message and connect with providers in that time frame as well. And so that that's huge. You know, we're very grateful. So like in Arizona, the Arizona Department of Corrections, rehabilitation and reentry has been wonderful. They allow us go in, to go into facilities prior to release and train staff and RPSs, which are reentry preparation specialists and, and other members of the community in corrections. We work very closely with community corrections as well, like parole or probation to try to get the information out. So we're very grateful for the partnerships we have in different states and every state it looks a little different, but mm -hmm. that department of corrections relationship is essential. Because once we have that, we then begin connecting with providers in the community and ask and hope that they want to register on our platform to be a resource. But first we get that relationship and then we contact providers, get them on our platform. And then once we have a healthy number of providers, we begin registering returning citizens. So, and, and now we do register, like I said, prior to release, but also anytime post-release, somebody can register. So if they did not get registered while they were still in the Department of Corrections or not, you know, even if they're not on parole or probation or anything anymore, if they ever were involved with our system, they can create a profile for free. That's dope. That's so That's good. It seems significant, like if a provider is filling out their own, their own um, information, they're like, we want to serve this community re-entering. So that seems like really significant. Yes, I, I would say it's huge. It's one of the biggest pieces of our platform. Of course, we have that for one, because you know, we have the messaging component. So we're like, if somebody, you know, they need to at least be willing to register themselves if they're going to be responsive to messages. And we want right. that, right? We want providers who are responsive and invested right. in our platform. Uh, but it really is what we call a coalition of the willing. These people, these organizations are taking an extra step to say, hey, we want to serve this population specifically. And a lot of the times, like some organizations are reentry specific, but a lot of the time they serve, you know, anybody in the community who's in need. Like we have a lot of shelters, for example, who will serve other people, right? Who are not just as involved. But they they also are saying, hey, we specifically want to serve this population and be here for them, mm -hmm. which is a huge difference in like the quality of care and treatment that is received. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. huge. And it's all at their fingertips. They don't have to go out and try to find it and stuff. Yeah, they don't have to. And they know that like they they know that every person they're talking to on our platform already knows that they have a felony conviction or they wouldn't be in our platform. Yeah. So there's it breaks down so much of that like barrier and awkwardness and that isolation. Yeah. We say that we try to break down the invisi invisibility and isolation of reentry. Mm. That's what a lot of people feel. They feel invisible. They they feel isolated from members of the community who want to support them or from other people who are going through the same thing. And our platform kind of allow, you know, breaks down those walls and allows a connection. Yeah. Cause it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Mm -hmm. Like having those conversations. So yeah. that's, that's beautiful. Didn't you say, well, how did it start? Cause I remember you saying like the dude, like who started it, he's got a pretty cool, like, yeah. posture with them so stuff. Fred Nelson our executive director he is a pastor by trade and he that's what he did you know spent his life doing uh in, in many different ways he studied religion 
And then uh, he got involved in prison ministry. Some members of his congregation ended up being incarcerated. And so he started going into, this actually originated in Illinois, and in Stateville Prison, he would go in and he would participate. He kind of, under, under the door prison ministry is what it was called. And he did prison ministry that way. And during that time, he wrote a book called The Spiritual Survival Guide for Prison and Beyond, which anybody's welcome to read for free. We actually send, or he sends cases of the book all over the country uh, to be read. It can be read online for free. They yeah. can have hard copies for uh, free. Too, oh, yeah, it's in yeah. prison. It's like 60,000 copies yeah. or something actively being read in prison right now So that we know of. Um, actually, Pinal County Jail, they just got 600 copies delivered to be part of their wow. Christmas packages. Yeah, so awesome. we're pretty excited about those. should be getting those this week. So that's really exciting. Uh, so during that time, he really discovered the need for reentry. He was like, a lot of people want to connect. They want to find resources. They want help. They want to do better, but they don't know where to go for it. And he's like, here, I am trying to look for it to help them. And I'm struggling to find resources. So he first created a paper reentry guide called Red Chicago. And it was just to kind of help those who were releasing to the Chicago area with resources. But he was like, it was so difficult to maintain because places were closing. They were going out of business. New organizations wanted to be added. We're printing copies. We can't print enough. Now we're printing copies that are out of date. And it just was like really difficult to keep up with. So he was like, there has to be a better way. And even online resources he noticed were out of date or nobody would actually respond. Or they were just organizations listed because they provided a helpful resource, mm -hmm. but they didn't actually want to serve this population. And he was like, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. And he thought of eBay and people call us like the eHarmony of reentry and and he yeah he thought of like this plot type of platform exists for so many other needs why does it exist for reentry so then he created ion to kind of fill that need uh, he, he's like you know i would walk down the street and i would see people sleeping under the bridge and then i know there's a homeless shelter up the street who can't fill their beds and they're going to lose funding because their beds aren't full and he's like why is this disconnect here right we need to break down these silos and we need to form true connection so yeah he created ion Ion sounds amazing. Um, well, we have heard more because we've gotten to talk to you and we're like, whoa, she's so dope. <laughs> but can you tell us more about your story? Like, how did you get involved in this work? Um, because I think people would love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So. So as I kind of shared with you guys before, right, I, I, I like, I grew up pretty sheltered and pretty fortunate and didn't experience a lot of like adversity in, in many ways. You know, we had our challenges, but overall, um, pretty smooth kind of upbringing. So I was really isolated and kind of naive about the different things that happened in society, um, especially in regard to our criminal justice system. I was just really unaware of that. So when I got to college, I began studying uh, criminal, criminal justice as my undergraduate degree. And that was kind of my first exposure to some kind of the way our system operated in, in some areas that we needed to improve. So you just came in like, I have an interest in criminal justice. Yeah. So I, okay. yeah, so mostly, but then I kind of have shared with you guys too. I, I uh, at the time was in an interracial relationship and I first started seeing like, okay, so I was interested in criminal justice and then kind of coupled with that. And I really saw some different things he was going through in our criminal justice system. And that was my first awareness to kind of the racial disparities that exist in our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So that relationship was very eye-opening for me. Um, and he, he was a veteran and he was, like I said, it was interracial. And there's a lot of different components of, of things that he was, he was experiencing that opened my eyes in many ways. So when I kind of really started to see some systematic issues we had, uh, and then between that and my studies, I kind of became more and more interested. So in, I also started kind of interning and shadowing for a criminal defense attorney during undergrad, during like the summertime. 
And he was a veteran as well. So he would go to like veterans court and kind of, and that was a court that was focused on rehabilitation instead of just punishment. So I would shadow him there. And then I would get to see kind of the benefits of if we do have a rehabilitative component, what could this look like? So now my, my interest was shifting that way. And then after undergrad, I, I wanted to volunteer and start going into prisons. So I started volunteering for Girl Scouts Beyond Bars, as I told you guys, is, <laughs> is kind of close to home still. Uh, and so I started volunteering for them and going into Perryville Prison and taking young girls in to visit their moms and hosting mm. kind of self-growth activities and that kind of thing. And so that was my first introduction to going into prison mm. and, and seeing the positive benefit that could come from moms maintaining ties with their children and also for the children maintaining ties with their mom. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of some of the social bond theory things we right. talked about that we might get into. But so that was kind of my first exposure to that. Then I went on to graduate school where I studied criminal justice again. Uh, and I also did a lot of criminology in here as well. So my undergrad was in criminology and criminal justice. And then my master's was in criminal justice. And so again, educationally became further interested in that. And then uh, yeah, and then I and during grad school, I started as an intern for the Inside Out Network. So I started, and that was my first full like dive into reentry and just really understanding needs of people uh, and the importance of treating people as people, offering some kindness and some hope. And kind of as I shared with you guys, I love that we can offer a helpful, tangible resource and a helpful tool. But above anything, uh, you know, we take a lot of pride in just offering some hope and some light mm -hmm. to individuals that are in dark places. So. Uh, that's why our color was yellow too, but that's kind of my story and in a nutshell of how I found my way to the work I'm doing now and just why I really feel like it's home. But it really just took having my eyes open to, I didn't know this was happening. I didn't know, you know, this macro level factors that contributed to people ending up in these situations. I didn't really truly know what our system was like once somebody was in it and the cycle that they can easily get caught in. I, I grew up, like I said, very sheltered from all of that. And so just kind of being willing to to open my eyes and shift my perspective during during college and and continuing now so yeah thanks for sharing that yeah thank you thank you i think that's one of the things like josh and i and our coworker crystal think we think about that a lot of just um how for for some people who when you have proximity to the system you have been or your family has been affected by um, mass incarceration it is easier to touch it, have experience, familiarity, like you care about it. Um, but when you don't have that, like how do we continue to grow, um, yeah, a heart for and an awareness and have people, like how do we have churches engage uh, with this issue of mass incarceration? Because it, it's affecting the world, God's people. How do we seek renewal in the world through it? So I'm like, I love that just hearing how your story, you know, you're like, it wasn't necessarily a part of my story, yeah. but then it was. And yeah. just it brought you more proximity to the issue yeah. um, where you're working in it every day now. Yeah, so. absolutely. Like you said, it wasn't most people, well, I would say most, but like, I, I, well, yes, I would say the majority of those like I work with who maybe work in reentry have some type of lived experience, either themselves have been impacted by the system or have encountered substance use challenges or different things uh, or had a very close loved one, like a relative or somebody who, who was in the system yeah. and, and impacted by that. I definitely seem like I'm sort of the oddball sometimes of I don't have any relatives who've ever been incarcerated. I obviously, like I said, I got my, I got my first speeding ticket in like this year. <laughs> so I never, I really never had. Wow, you got your first speeding ticket this year. 
<laughs> right? It's crazy. So I know, no, no. So, but so it's like I never really had any level of involvement with the system, and yeah, and just like being open to that. I think that's the hardest thing. Is like you said, sometimes it's hard for us to be want to. I know like even my relatives, like for example, my sister, she sometimes like, I, I get so overwhelmed because like, it's so disheartening. And like, she, she'll hear from me with all the different problems in our system. Cause obviously she grew up very similar to me, right? Same household and stuff. And so she's like, it, it gets so overwhelming. And then you almost don't want to deal with it because, well, it doesn't affect people I know. Right. And, and, um, so that's a huge thing I think is sometimes people like not only are they unaware because it doesn't affect anybody they know, some people choose not to care because it doesn't affect anybody they know. But I think for the most part, it's just, you don't know what you don't know. And then it can almost be overwhelming when you do start to know. Cause you're like, how can I help with this work? Can I help? Sometimes I feel like some people, it's just like, I know we have problems, but I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. And sometimes when it's not affecting people that are close to you, that, that, that is intimidating and just you know, you, you kind of almost want to do nothing. Cause sometimes I get into that of not like uh, the opposite of like, I want to fix everything, but you can't, right? So you need to pick yeah. a place to start and just start small. And then hopefully that kind of yeah. continues to grow. But I would say that's the biggest thing. So people, I think that the first place to start is one is try to get educated on the issue. Like really be like, I want to learn about what is going on. Learn and listen to people who have been in the system. Cause as I was sharing with you, I don't have that lived experience, but it's so important and it's invaluable for us who are working in this space to listen to those who have lived experience. So every day I'm trying to learn from somebody who has experienced incarceration mm -hmm. and just asking like, what could I do to help and to make this better for, you know, can't make it better for you right now. Cause you know, they're done with the system hopefully at that point, but for those who are still, who are still in our system and, 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 incar and are incarcerated and how can we help with that? So I think just being open to being educated about the issue, like you said, aside from politics, aside from all of that, make it a human issue instead of a political issue mm -hmm. and, and really open your mind and your heart to that, to that, yeah. I think is huge. Yeah, man. Yeah. I feel like you have so much, like, it's cool because you're, you'll meet people like, you know, that they care about it, but they care about it from like, not an aside where they've experienced or talked to anybody or listened to anybody. So it's cool that you've like studied this and you know so much, but then also like, you know so much cause you've talked and listened with so many and like in the work that you do. Yeah. So it's cool. You have that perspective. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things is I try to bridge like my formal education with those who have lived experience. Like, um, you know, we, we were talking about guest speakers and how they came and spoke and, and some individuals mentioned, well, like sometimes I don't think it's a is criminal justice system issue, maybe it's a societal issue. And like, we need to help youth before they even get into these environments, right? And things like that. Well, as, you know, put on my academic hat and I listen to that and it's like, okay, well, maybe I can't go out on the streets and actually help the people in that way. But what are you telling me? Because some people are saying, right? Like, like, you know, people who don't have a father in the home. Okay, well, what can I help? How can I kind of look at our criminal justice system and look at things from like an educational standpoint and say, well, how can I fix that? That's a macro level factor issue. That's kind of mass incarceration problems. We have people, more people incarcerated for longer periods of time. So you're saying, I think our criminal justice system will benefit from kids having less contact to begin with, right? How can we do that? How can we keep households together? Well, we can, we don't need to incarcerate people for longer than they need to be, right? We we don't need to incarcerate, incarcerate maybe as many people as we are. So kind of, like I said, kind of taking what people are saying and then how can I tie that in to, to what I know and what maybe we have some control over to influence in those different type of things. So listening to what they say and then creating kind of our own goal out of it, 
uh, and our own approach, I think can be really helpful. But yeah, you definitely have to like put the two together. Yeah. uh, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would love, so Emma, like within the intensive, you talk about kingdom versus empire and how Mm -hmm. looking through the lens of the kingdom of God versus the lens of an empire, you come to two different conclusions of justice, right? Yeah. And when we look through the lens of kingdom, oftentimes we find our hearts looking at more of a restorative justice perspective. Yeah. Um, One, I would love for you to talk about a little bit about that. And then also like hear some of the theories that you were sharing with us around restorative justice. Yeah. I'm like, I can't wait for you to talk about that stuff. (laughs) Only because I'm like, can I pull out notes and take notes on the podcast? Or is that weird? Because I just want to like learn from you and absorb some of, like you said, your academics and meeting like relationships on the ground, you know? But yeah, I think like the biggest thing when we talk about the kingdom of God versus like the kingdom of empire. It's like um, Jesus is presenting us this vision of a kingdom where you're never defined. Your worst days never define you. Um, Where your brokenness and your pain and your mistakes uh, is met with compassion and grace and love. And it's not um, because right, we're, we're, there's all every, all of us are, at some le- some level, really, really broken. And um, so just this picture that Jesus gives us of like, when we mess up, all of our brokenness that creates within us, like we make decisions based off of our traumas, how we were raised. There's all these things that make us who we are, but that's not like when it's, when we mess up or we make decisions that are destructive or harmful, um, that Jesus would never say, throw them away. Yeah. I'm done with them. Um, they are trash. Jesus is like, I love them so much. Don't throw them away. Um, like, let I, I want to meet them and know them and sit with them and love them. And so, like, we just see this picture of a, through Jesus, we see this picture of a criminal justice system that doesn't throw people away and say, you are too far gone to be reformed or rehabilitated. But it says, like, let me come closer. Let me come closer to you. Let me love you. Let's bring healing. Like, let's get you the things that you need to bring inner healing, um, to have resources to pull from, to like deal with your trauma and your pain in a different way, like to give you a different type of vision for life. But what I think we've seen as I've learned more, because I'm like you, I came in and I didn't know much, but I was like, I got to learn. So I just got to meet everybody I can and talk to people and learn from the ground. But I'm like, we, I don't think we have a criminal justice system that does that. Um, I think there's beautiful parts because everything has beautiful parts, but really broken parts. But I'm like, how do we, like, Lord, give us a vision of something that's different, of something that's, um, that sees people as they are, that humanizes people and says, they're absolutely worth my time, my love. They can be reformed. They can be rehabilitated. They can be these valuable contributors to our world that we actually need. We can't throw them away. We need them. Um, but I'm like, so how do we shift a narrative in the, in, like for the incarcerated that looks and sounds more like Jesus and less like they, we're going to define them by their worst moments, throw them away. They are a threat to our society. We're done with them. And I'm like, who, how is that reforming anyone? Um, but yeah, so I think, I, yeah, yeah, I think about that a lot. Like, Lord, help us to see people 
with your eyes. Um, but so that's why I think of like when you were like when you were talking, I don't know if you were hearing this, Josh, but I was like, you're talking about not just addressing like on the tree, like the fruit you see from it, but how do we like even go to prevention and go to the roots of like there are these issues that actually affect um, the they affect incarceration and um, kids that go into the system. So addressing like the issues at all levels, and that does feel a little overwhelming to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, so when, but I know you've shared with us some of your, like the theories and things that you've learned. We'd like love to hear some of that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first I just, I love what you said, cause that's how we kind of look at it. As I, I don't know if I mentioned, but well, kind of a background, but I'm an executive director, but we are faith-based found a nonprofit. So of course we welcome, we welcome anybody um, of any faith or no faith or anything, but that is the lens through we see it as well, mm-hmm. that everybody deserves love and compassion and forgiveness. And how can we see people through God's eyes and, and what, and, and how would he see them and want to heal them and help guide them? Uh, and more so than, like you said, than judgment and outcasting. And, and I'm like, I don't understand that. Like I, you know, he loves all of us regardless of the decisions we've made or mistakes we've made. And so that's what I should do too, is how can I try to, you know, extend that love also. And like I said, that kind of, to me, brings back to the human component. Like you said, how do we humanize people and understand we've all made mistakes to different degrees, to different, in different ways, but we all have. Um, and none of us would want to be judged by our worst decision, right? We all, our, our mistakes we've made. Um, so I think it's just looking in and seeing really who people are and not what they've done. And that can really shift that lens. So, uh, it, of course it's a hard thing. I always try to give compassion to is I, cause so many people are like, oh, you look in reentry. It's like, I also advocate very seriously for like victims of domestic violence as an yeah. organization. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to pick, right? I can give compassion right. to, and that's kind of the restorative justice part is still being really supportive of both parties. So. I had totally have compassion and understand why some people who especially have had loved ones or themselves who are hurt by people mm-hmm. to really feel this, you know, for it to be challenging for them to forgive. But, uh, but it's just a challenge for all of us to really like, kind of like look in ourselves and uh, look at the people who we are working with and just being like, you know, how do we stop this hurt from continuing? Because as I said, like hurt people usually hurt people, right? So how do we, how do we break those cycles? Uh, and that's usually with compassion and care and it's not with mm-hmm. poor treatment. So that's kind of what I feel about it. Um, and then I know you asked about some theories, right? I don't know. Yeah. To Cause you, you stuff. shared well, like, yeah, I yeah. want, I want you to share it. Cause you shared some yeah. theories that were like, yo, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, and like one of it, uh, yeah, there's like yeah, different absolutely. theories. There's like three cool ones. Like we talked about. Yeah. yeah. So from like a criminology standpoint, right? That's so criminology is a study of criminal behavior. And why do people commit crime? But why do other people obey the law, right? And what really goes into criminal like criminal behavior? And it looks different for everybody. So I had a really r- wonderful criminologist professor, and he was like, not one theory explains everybody's criminal behavior, but there's a theory to explain everyone's. If that makes sense. So like, not one explains all, but you usually can always find a one that fits some. So, uh, really understanding like why why are people committing crime, right? What what is participating in their thinking? What has participated in their like the development, traumas, environment? What are the different components that contributed to them being where they are now? Mm-hmm. Because to, for me. I'm like, how do I truly become compassionate and give understanding and grace? Well, it's kind of understanding how do they get to this point? And it's not necessarily excusing it or anything else. It's just having an understanding of what led them to this point, I think is drastically helpful in determining how you can help them and also providing that compassion element, right? So a lot of times, and I think that's 
just really important to keep in mind. But that's kind of criminology. So within that, there's many different theories you can talk about. We've talked some about like labeling theory. And people, you know, you'll hear me use terms like returning citizen or previously justice involved, um, formerly incarcerated, right? That kind of terminology versus felon or convict or something else like that inmate. I try not to really use that terminology. And we encourage our returning citizens to not use that to describe themselves either. Because like what labeling theory suggests is that if you only ever call someone a felon, what are they going to continue to be? A felon, right? If you call someone a champion every day, if you say you are great every day, like you're going, labeling theory argues that people will kind of form to the label that you give them. So we say the same thing even in youth. If you tell a youth that you're either going to end up in prison or in a gang and those are like your only options or, or not make it at all, right? Um, if that's all you keep telling a youth because that's the environment they're in, they're so much more likely to meet that. If you tell them you can go to college, you can go to trade school, you can do whatever you want to do, they're a lot more likely to form to that label. We all tend to, to fit into different labels that have been given to us or that we give ourselves, right? right? So that's really important is, and I'll kind of tie this into desistance theory in a minute, but yeah, so those labels that are given to people or that we give ourselves are really important. Uh, as far as help, because if you say, well, you're formerly incarcerated or you're a returning citizen or you were previously justice involved, right? That implies, but you aren't anymore. You know, you, you have no longer involvement with our justice system. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all it was. Like when I'm talking with people about going on job interviews, I'm like, use that terminology. I was previously justice involved, but this is what I have done to rehabilitate myself. This is who I am now and the direction I'm going in now. And that's a way different context than I was in, I'm a felon and I was in prison. Then like, you know, there's so many different ways you yeah. can frame it. And how you frame it is not only important for other members in society, but so like for themselves, yeah. because this is how I see myself, that that is a past thing. And this is where I'm headed now. Right. So yeah, labeling theory just really argues that the labels we give uh, ourselves or other people are really impactful in who they end up becoming um, or who they shape into. So mm -hmm. we really need to be intentional about the labels, um, or intentional about the labels we are giving people yeah. in, in our community for sure. So that's really important. Like some people don't think that's really small, but I think it's I think it's pretty big, right? Yeah. So it seems big. I think sometimes people they'll be like, well, they'll name people who they'll name the um, like the golden stories, the ones that came from the mud, mm -hmm. and they're like they overcame this and this and this. But I but I'm like oftentimes I'm like yeah, but isn't that more of the exception yeah. than the rule? Yeah, um, that's that's not the that's not actually. The, the rule, what you see is more like how you're, how people are labeled, yeah. but they come out of really affects yeah. the trajectory. Yeah. And, and, so. all, and definitely, and all kind of desistance really touches on how someone goes from like negative labels to positive ones and what contributes to that shift um, of just committing crime to not and desisting from crime. So um, I can kind of go into that now, but I'll, yeah. I'll touch on yeah, social bond theory a little bit too and kind of tie them in. So desistance. So basically you guys hear a lot about recidivism, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. how um, people who recidivate, recidivating means going back to prison, right? Committing another crime and going back to prison. So that's a lot of what our country and criminal justice system tracks because it's really easy to track, right? We right. know people who get out and go back. That's this easy statistic right. to monitor. And recidivism rates are pretty high from what I know yes, in our country. They, they are. They're they pretty are. high. So yeah. Just so people listening know what you're talking yes, about. Like, yeah. it's a high probability that when people get released from prison, yes. 
that a lot of them go back within like three years. Yes. And it's usually about the three year mark that it's tracked. Uh, but definitely that is the case. So to me, I look at, okay, why are we incarcerating the most people in the world, but we also have the highest recidivism rates. Something is, right. we're doing something wrong, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. and anybody who even really is put of our justice system and incarceration and in different things, you can also be like, okay, but the whole point is that people go to prison to serve their time. And if they have done so, why do we continue to make it impossible for them coming home? Yeah. Because I kind of getting a little off track, but I'll, I'll get back to it. But like social bond theory, we know. So social bond theory is another theory that argues the more pro-social ties someone has to society, mm -hmm. the more likely they are to be successful. Mm -hmm. So a pro-social tie could be stable employment, stable place to live, consistent food, a positive relationship, uh, mm -hmm. either like an intimate intimate partner or just with family members or with children or whatever it may be. Anything that we would consider like a pro-social tie or pro-social way of life, right? Uh, that society basically has deemed over time that is pro-social. So though we know that having ties to, to these pro-social bonds and creating these pro-social bonds are essential to anyone living a pro-social life, right? Yeah. And so, but when people get released from incarceration, those barrier after barrier after barrier to them creating those pro-social ties. It's harder for people with a felony conviction to get a job. Yeah. Usually harder for them to find a place to live. Okay. Usually harder for them to form relationships with other trusting people, right? So if we continue to be like, okay, they served their time for whatever it was, right? Um, and they, but we don't give them any tools usually while they're in crisis or very few. I mean, of course, things are shifting in the country, which is why organizations like ours exist and other things are happening. Yeah. So definitely, it's a really good time to be in reentry because it's moving in a positive direction. But historically, we have not given people the most resources to make these changes and develop these ties. Uh, and we also make it really challenging upon their reentry mm -hmm. to allow them to, to make these ties. It's mm -hmm. like, we make it almost impossible. So what do they do? They go back to what they know, which was probably what landed them to prison in the first place. People, places, or things that led them there. Uh, and then it just repeats. So people don't understand that a lot of the times, the best way to help prevent future crime from occurring is to help people who have committed crime, yeah. right? Because if we can help them not recidivate, that are that is future that not only for me personally i really enjoy helping the individual thrive but it also mm -hmm. helps protect any future victim that could be of theirs if we were to not help them or not help them reintegrate because they can just easily then more easily go back to what they know yeah. um so it's like how can we help them on that new path if we're like hey take this new path but all the roads are closed no one's going to take that path mm -hmm. so how can we kind of open that a little bit um, that, so that's kind of the pro-social, like the, the social bond theory and those pro-social ties. And that's how they're really essential to re-entry. It's kind of another little theory, but desistance looks at the others. So we talked about recidivism mm -hmm. and people going back to prison and, and what that means. Right. But desistance looks at the other side of the co coin. So yes, there's a very high percentage of recidivating. Right. But what about those who are getting out and staying out? Because there is a percentage of yeah. them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you say 30% are getting out and staying out, well, what are they doing well? And why don't we ever look at that and how can we implement that across the board? Instead of only looking at the ones who are doing something wrong and going back, mm -hmm. let's look at that other side of the coin. So Shad Marana, I kind of sent you guys some stuff by him too. He wrote, he wrote a wonderful book on desistance and kind of outlines things really well. But basically overall, it kind of comes down to like those four main components that contribute to desistance. And the first one being openness to change. And usually this comes as a result of what they call like a breakdown that then leads to a breakthrough. So maybe something like really tragic happens or just really eye-opening happens and it allows the individual's mind to open to change, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one component. 
Then there's a, what they call it the turning point or a hook. This could be a job, joining the military, getting married, having some other influential, you know, positive relationship in your life, having a kid, there's something that is pretty, you know, hefty that encourages you to really make that turn around because it's motivating you. A lot of times too, this is where like church communities come in. People sometimes will find like a church community or build a relationship with God. You hear that a lot, especially in prison. People will find God in prison and form these relationships. And that can be a turning point as well. Mm -hmm. So turning point in there somewhere. And then there's the kind of positive self-talk and identity work piece. Okay, so now you've had the open mind to initiate change. You've kind of hit your turning point. And then the identity talk, which kind of goes and brings me back a little bit to like labeling theory, which we talked about how you look at yourself, understanding who you are, like truly are, and who you're capable of being. Um, that identity work piece is huge. And then it's also the fourth component is leaving that old self behind. So kind of understand that that's not really who you were and this is truly who I am. And this is who I want to continue to be. Um, and so that those four components kind of go into, is, is what is found to really contribute to those who are desisting from crime. Like you mentioned, we know some people who were in like, involved in heavy criminal activity and they've turned a new leaf and, and usually these components contribute to that. So as yeah. members of the community or faith community or whatever it is, um, think about how can we help people with these components, mm -hmm. right? How can we help them with their toning points and encourage them to happen? How can we help them with their positive self-identity work? And how can we also support them in letting go of who, you know, maybe some decisions they were and who they used to be, but understanding that's not truly who they are. So that's what desistance argues. And here at ION, and just in general, even my students at ASU, uh, I you know, we, we try to talk about desistance more often. And it is becoming more common. Like I think the BJS and BJA, you know, Bureau of Justice mm -hmm. people um, are now speaking a lot on desistance and it's becoming way more common to have in conversation. But a lot of people, everyone who is about recidivism and a lot of people have not yet heard about desistance. Mm -hmm. And it can really, if we start looking through that lens and I think it gives people, like I said, with the overwhelming component, to me, that's like helpful. Okay, I can, you know, if someone has had the openness kind of break down to breakthrough moment, and how can I help them find that turning point or find what they're passionate about, whether that's family or employment or the church or whatever it is, like we can support people in that. Like it gives us ways, I think, or tools to be like, we can, we can do this, right? We can help people in these components. So that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm literally sitting here listening to you like, Oh my gosh, this is like uh, where I easily see like the discipleship of the church, where it can make such a difference. Because um, I see so many theological yeah. ties, yeah. like yeah. the regeneration, like made new, you know, like renewing our mind, uh, like all these things that are um, so, so much of what you're talking about. And I know you're talking about theory, but also like just how I'm like, man, we see all of that in the Bible. So I'm like, oh, there's like, there's like always this social, spiritual, because uh, I was also thinking in Christian community development, there, this uh, theory exists in that too, where it's like, we want to see hearts and lives regenerated, but we also want to see communities renewed and regenerated financially, socially, psychologically to bring the flourishing of God's kingdom into communities. Mm -hmm. And so they call it asset-based community development, which is not like, let's not look at what sucks about this community. What assets does this community have? And then let's build on those. Absolutely. So I'm like, oh, it's the same thing, but like, 
Well, the people who are staying out and you're seeing transformation or rehabilitation happen, what are the big things shifting in their lives? And then let's build on that. So I'm like, there's so much opportunity just listening to you talk. It, I get like internally really excited. <laughs> Good, so, I love yeah. that. Yeah, no, because you're absolutely right. Like you said, there's so much overlap there. Sometimes we don't we don't realize, or people aren't, don't realize, because like you said, it's that criminal justice is a foreign thing, but it's really not, right? Like I said, if you make it a human thing and a community thing, we see very similar things across our communities in other ways. So how can we just, and I think like you said, it. some people I know that I will, because like I said, I totally understand. I understand this emotional response to people who have committed crime or have caused harm to our communities because there is an element of public safety too, right? Mm -hmm. We all want to feel safe in our community. So we, I understand the purpose that that serves for sure, right? We all do. Um, but how can we get, take like that lens off of uh, like retribution and those type of things. And, and how can we, okay, like, yes, public safety is important, but past that, how can we shift from retribution to rehabilitation? And, yeah. and how can we be more open to, and understanding, like like I said, for some of us, it's really important to help this individual thrive because there are brothers and sisters in Christ and that's important, right? But even outside of that mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, like just how, I'm trying to think of how to put this in like a kind of a clear way, but like, so that that's one component, right? But also, how can we like keep our community safer? Because as I said, breaking these cycles within households, within communities, like if we can make help people become productive members of society, we all benefit outside of helping that individual, right? It, yeah, it really truly benefits society as a whole. If they can come uh, become productive members of society, that's wonderful. Because also incarceration is very expensive. (laughs) So outside of all the other human components that are issues, it's really expensive to incarcerate people. So if we can help them become productive members of society, like I said, it helps our community on a lot more levels and sometimes people realize because they have an emotional response to, well, this person committed a crime, we don't care what happens to them, right? They deserve that or different things. Uh, But really taking a step outside of that emotional reaction and looking at it from a wider lens. Yeah, Yeah, looking at justice through a more restorative lens rather than punitive lens. But like Mm -hmm. all of us, we think of justice as like, he did it, okay, then he gets that, you know? But like, yeah. I think the interesting thing is like, uh, we were watching this video of uh, a prison in Norway. I don't know if you've seen what they're doing, yeah. but they're really trying to like change the approach and very different. Very different. Yeah. They are like, okay, if this individual is going back into our society, we want them to go back into society yeah. healthier than when they got yeah. punished and, and convicted of a crime. Yeah. So it's like, why would we put them in a worse, even a worse situation mm-hmm. than they're in or put them in an environment that they're going to have to be forced to survive and do more criminal activity yeah. mm-hmm. um, to survive, yeah. like, and then bring them back into society. They're going to come back into society worse than they, they, yeah. they was when they went in. A hundred percent. We know that prison increases criminality a lot yeah. of the time. And like you said, the, people a lot of times don't realize that like over probably 95% of our population returns to our communities. So people, you think, like you said, kind of the, the maybe the one-offs of people who are doing life and never getting out or on death row, we're like, that is not most of the prison population. And it, the United States over six, I think this year was over 640,000 people return to our communities from incarceration. Annually, over 600,000 people. Yeah. So it's like, that is a lot of people. There's a book and it's called And They All Come Home. And it basically talks about that. Like we know majority of people are returning to our community. So like you said, do we want them to be protective members or just keep going back? Like, so yeah. Yeah. And then once they come back to the community, do we want them to actually be welcomed back in or do we Mm -hmm. want life to be harder for them? Yeah. 
Um, and then there comes that question of like, was that really the punishment then, their prison yeah. sentence, or is their punishment the rest of their life? Yeah, and that's what people always, I always challenge people who think, like say that there's, and few people fall into this, but people who are like, there's no issues in our justice system, it functions fine. It's like, even if you full-heartedly believe that, then you think that if someone, that's why people, not everyone receives a life sentence, right? Because the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. That goes back to like a constitution, you know, mm-hmm. no cruel or unusual punishment. So the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. If they have served their time for that crime based on what, you know, like I said, even if you do have total faith in our criminal justice system, which <laughs> could be a conversation for a different time too. But so, but even if you do, right, because I think there are good things about our system, um, then you would be like, okay, but they serve their time. So let's be done with that and let's now help them, help them move. Forward. Yeah. Put a different foot forward. Yeah. So that's really, you know, that's an important component for sure. And I, I challenge my students with this too. I always say it kind of comes down to like, what do we want? What is the goal of our system? Right? Is it punishment? Is it retribution, which is like an eye for an eye? Mm-hmm. Is it rehabilitation? Is it, you know, restoration? Like what is the goal of our justice system? And a lot of them really have to think about that. Right? Cause uh, like I said, understandably so, there probably needs to be an element of punishment or correction, but how can we tie in rehabilitation and healing into that? Like, even if you yeah. feel that that's necessary, like I said, for some people, I understand, you know, because we need public safety, yeah. but how can we tie in rehabilitation and compassion so that they can actually come out refreshed and renewed? And yeah. but, but it really comes down to asking ourselves, especially for criminal justice professionals, of what, are, what is the goal of our system? Right. Um, And and kind of challenging your thinking because most people are not when they really think about it are like, well, we don't want retribution because an eye for an eye makes the world go blind. Right. And so we know that. So it's like, how how can we do things differently? The film Josh was talking about, one of the things I love that they say is uh, the prison in Norway. They say, what kind of neighbors, what kind of neighbor do I want? You know, and we love that question because, like, the neighbor's table. But it's like, in prison, we are, they're going to come out and they're going to be my neighbor, your neighbor, everyone's neighbor. What kind of neighbors do we want to come out and be a part of our community? And so how are we making people good neighbors um, through our system? And I'm like, yeah, we we ain't making no good neighbors right now. <laughs> we, we ain't making no good neighbors. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is so. It's yeah. true. They be your neighbors. They could be your friend, your coworker. Right. Uh, a lot of times, like, what, so actually, an individual I know who works at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, right? She's been there a long time, and she was like, no, she's like, they tell you this stuff doesn't hit home. She's like, it does because she's been at uh, working at the complex for a long time now. And an individual who was in custody there is now released and is like the father of one of, of like her daughter's best friend. And so she's like, not only are they, they're, they're like my children's friend's parents. Right. Right. And they actually have a good relationship because he's like, you treated us with respect the entire time I was there. But yeah. it's like that sometimes how close it can be of her daughter was like talking about so-and-so and she's like, yeah, that name sounds familiar. And then they had like a play date and they met and he was in custody there for like over a decade. And so it's like like a lot closer than we realize. Like so, right. what kind of neighbor, what kind of community members, what kind of like right. what? And because it does keep us all safer too. Right. Exactly. Um, and it just is better for our community. Like I said, on top of of course being better for that individual because yeah. that's huge. Desistance talks about that too. Is of course we 
you know, we want productive members of society and, but a lot of times individuals, like their only goal potentially sometimes is not to recidivate, right? People mm -hmm. tell them that, well, your only thing should be not go just back to prison. Yeah, just don't go back to prison. Yeah. But it's like, I try to encourage people that you could have so many more goals far beyond that and desistance encourages that. Yeah. So, you, you know, your only goal doesn't need to be not to go back to prison, but it can be like to get out and stay out, do something where you're gonna be thriving, a career that you're passionate about, redevelop a relationship with your kids, own a house like your goals right. can be so much more like staying out of prison is a goal but it's not it doesn't need to be your only goal right like you can have whatever goals you want to have a part of a role in that is society you know being allowing them to make that happen but but that is something that we really try to encourage and is like you know to that you you don't have to just survive you can thrive and that's very different, right? We all know that that's very different. Mm -hmm. There's borderlines arriving, basic essentials, and there's thriving and what yeah. really goes into living a life that is like fulfilling. Yeah. So I always encourage people like you don't, that does not need to be your only purpose is just, oh, I need to get a job so that my PO doesn't send me back. I need, you know what I mean? Like that's not, that that doesn't need to be yeah. your way of life. And, and so. it takes time. Like it takes right. time. Right. I've sat with dudes who, and listen to them cry because they're like it's so freaking hard mm -hmm. like it's so hard for me to like feel like i'm a part of society yeah. it's so hard for me to like uh see myself not as just a felon or a gang member or whatever you know like to just sit in the room and and there's it's hard yeah, yeah. it's hard for guys to like come back and just uh not think of in that mindset, not be institutionalized. Yeah. And uh, yeah, institutionalization is huge. Post-incarceration syndrome is huge. Yeah. It's like a form of PTSD for those who have been incarcerated, right? Like my friend's like, no, I still hear keys jingle and it gives me like chills. Yeah, my friends right. are like, oh yeah, I still remember the screams at night and stuff I would hear, yeah. or I, you know, like things like that. Like, yeah. People still remember that. So my friends are like, oh, I still wear my slippers in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Shower shoes for life. Like you hear about that where they go into like Walmart or something, it's really overwhelming. I was working with an individual who was in prison for 25 years and he got out. He's like, I was going to go eat and I'm looking at the soda machine. He's like, it was like a spaceship. Cause you know, the ones that have all the different yeah, buttons yeah, that you can yeah. push. He's like, you just, when I went in, you just push the thing. And he's like, what is, he goes, I couldn't find my flavor. Like I just was like, I like, what do you want? He's like, Coke. Do you want vanilla Coke? Do you want chip? He's like, Coke. And it's like, he's like, which like, so many options yeah. and people talk about that like in i don't know what the numbers are but something like in everyday person we made like six thousand decisions a day let's say i said don't quote me on the number but like yeah. straight amount of decisions like thousands of decisions a day and they say the average like person who's incarcerated makes like 500 a day because a decision could be like what shoes am i gonna wear what socks am i gonna pick out right what hat am i gonna wear what route am i gonna take to work am i gonna stop here am i gonna turn here like all those things are decisions right and so they say like how limited it is when you are incarcerated so then you come out and it's so incredibly overwhelming because they don't get to pick their own clothes or what they wear or what they do when they do it when what time they want to eat none of everything is picked yeah. for them so it's really hard for people to get out like there's so many overwhelming components like i said i don't have that lived experience but that I, just people i work with i can't yeah. even imagine how how overwhelming that must be and you kind of touched on too that it takes a long time again another kind of component of desistance is that understanding that it, sometimes it's a journey to leaving a life of crime. So a lot of people want criminal behavior to be like a light switch. They yeah. want you to go from committing crime to not, right? Yeah, That's the expectation. When you think about any other behavior in our life, it doesn't work that way. So if somebody's trying to lose 50 pounds and they lose 20 pounds and then they put on five, we would be like, you're still doing great. You lost 20 pounds, now you lost 15 pounds. You're on the right track. Keep doing what you were doing. You're fine, right? Yeah. That's positive progress. 
Um, or someone's trying to stop smoking cigarettes, like say they go from two packs a day to one pack a week, that's positive progress, yeah. right? They're still smoking, that's but still that's good. positive progress. Yeah. We don't look at criminal behavior that way, but no, we exactly. should. So it's like, okay, so you went from like severe violent crime to now you're having some death problems or you're still having like some substance challenges or whatever it may be, but are you moving in that positive direction? And we're so quickly to be like, nope, they messed up, go back. Nope. They so that's where things are trying to change, kind of share with you like Maricopa Reentry Center yeah. and how some things are trying, they're trying to do things different and be more compassionate to there is a journey to leaving a life of crime or to healing substance challenges or whatever that may be. But like I said, I, I kind of like using those analogies because it makes us think of like, that's so true. In right. any other aspect of our life, we understand it's a gradual process. We give compassion if people backtrack a little and then go back on track or whatever, but we do not when it comes to criminal behavior as a justice system usually. Right. So how can we, how can we be more understanding that changing a behavior is a process? Yeah. You know, we need that sometimes it's going to be gradual. Sometimes people are going to slip up, but it doesn't mean they went back to square one, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Can I ask, um, I wanted to ask you cause, uh, how can people who are like, this is so good. I've learned so much. I still have no idea how I could even be a part of engaging in this. Like this is a huge issue. How do I, t how do I get more proximity to it? Yeah. What would you tell someone from, cause yeah. from your, you know, your background, your story, what you do, yeah. that's where would you start? Yeah, that is, that's a tough question. Cause it is so hard and it's so, it, yeah, big. It's so yeah. big and it's yeah. so hard. I would say to first, like I said, kind of start kind of trying to get a little bit more educated about the issues, um, like when whatever way that fits you, whether you want to watch the videos or read some things online or like whatever it is, but kind of find the piece where you really feel like, you know, you feel like a little bit of passion, a little bit of spark there and kind of start there. So like for some people, it might be wrongful conviction, right? And that's how a lot of people get involved in our system. For other people, it might be juvenile justice and wanting to help early. Mm -hmm. For other people, it's helping lifers who are never getting out, but bringing them some peace in their situation, right? So kind of like, I think if you can, Find a little bit like that. And even that's hard, probably not super helpful, but like doing a, right. like looking into just a little bit of things, like opening your mind to like listening to different podcasts or different videos or, or learning from other people who are in the system, like just trying to gather a little bit more information and then seeing like, you know what, that really stands out to me and it's a way I want to contribute. And then from there seeing what you can do. So like, for example, if you do want to be involved in like bringing faith into inside of facilities, right? You have God behind bars, you have prison fellowship, you have different things that are going on. And you can always see like locally, what is available here? Can I volunteer at a church and help organize a clothing closet yeah. for people coming home, right? So once you kind of find, I think where your niche is like, do I want to help people who are never getting out? Do I want to help in reentry? Do I want to help youth? Do I want to help wrongfully convicted? Like, what is it that I kind of am a little bit more like, like well, yeah. you know, the most interested in right now? And then just seeing what you can do. Like I said, it could, might just be like, I'm not ready to go into a prison environment, no. but I want to help my local church organize a clothing closet. I didn't know that they offered clothing to people in need, including people who are leaving right. incarceration. And that's where I want to start. Right. Other people, maybe it's donating financially. They want to donate to different organizations who are doing this work and that kind of gets their toe wet. Maybe then they start volunteering a little bit, you know, so there's like kind of different things, I think. But starting out, just really try to listen, listen to, like I said, people who have been in the system, people who are working in the system and then kind of see like I'm interested in this element. And then in different, depending on the community that you're in, there's usually some way to get involved, yeah. whether that's directly with the 
Department of Corrections or just something in your community who is supporting people coming home. Yeah. So I don't know if that really answered your question. But no, it's I good. That, it's, yeah. it's a lot of discovery, I'd say. It like. is, yeah. Because even like, for me, like I said, I started yeah. with the criminal defense attorney, well, personal relationship, studying at school, the criminal defense attorney, which I was never, like I said, open, like, not really not open to it, not unaware of this. I didn't even think about people who came home. Like, yeah. you know, law enforcement, you learn about courts and sentencing, you know that people get incarcerated. You don't talk a whole lot about people coming home. Right. And so I kind of like, yeah, so for most people, like I always just encourage my students to just like do the things. You have to get your feet wet with it. Like me volunteering for Girl Scouts was at the female prison. Now I'm mm-hmm. like primarily going to male facilities, but you eventually find your way into like, you know, I was an intern for Ion first because I'm like, let me see how this is. But just trying different things. But being open to that, I think that's the hardest thing yeah. for a lot of people is this is probably outside of my comfort zone. I had never been to a prison before I started volunteering because right? I never had family members or anybody there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that's different than my coworker. She had a personal tie to it. And so she's like, no, I visited him all the time. So that wasn't, you know, so everyone has their different things. Usually, yeah. though, there's going to be something out of your comfort zone. And so being willing to kind of explore that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. part of it, like the way I see it is like people being willing to weep with those who weep, mourn mm. with those who mourn, and uh, and like meet people where they're at. Because like with how many people are incarcerated in our country, depending on your community, obviously some communities like incarceration, what, like how does that matter? It doesn't, you know, really affect me directly. But then you go to other communities and you ask how many people in that community to raise their hand, you know, hey, who, who, do you have someone in your life or your family that's incarcerated? But a lot of people will raise their hands. Yeah. And so it's relevant to a lot of people and a lot of people mourn some of the realities that their loved ones face. And like part of me is just like, man, I, I hope that uh, people everywhere, but also like in, in the evangelical circles will be able to like listen yeah. to others and learn from them and hear them. Because like a lot of times... You know, especially with like uh, maybe controversial stuff like this, you know, like people might have a very quick opinion because they ascribe to a certain politic mm-hmm. or something like that. And that's what they hear, and what's, what they know. Yeah. But you might talk to someone else and they might be coming at you and telling you their, their best friend's story. Yeah. And they're like, no, it's personal to me. And they yeah. might like, because they're thinking of a face when they're talking yeah. about it. And you, when you're talking about this, you're not just thinking about books you read. You're thinking no. about faces and eyes you've yes. looked into. Hundreds. And so like, yeah, hundreds. So yeah. Um, like it just, man, I wonder what it would look like if more people, when they're talking about these issues there, they see someone, you know what I mean? Like Ricky on the first podcast, like people, when they think of these issues, they see him, they see his eyes, you know what I mean? And like, when I'm talking about these issues, I'm just like running through all my friends and my, the faces of people I love who have been in that for so long, um, still are in it and stuff. And so. Yeah. yeah, like you said, putting people to it. And I think it's something like, I mean, as of when I recently checked, it's like something like one in four people in our community, like one in four people you'll run into had some run in with our mm-hmm. justice system at mm-hmm. some point in their life. And that's usually like way higher, way more often than people think. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it does even hit closer to home than we even realize. And like you said, if you can't put faces to things. And I would say like the amount of times that you know, like the people here where I'm from and where I grew up and whatever, and, and they think you have no idea, right? But then people are like, oh, like, what do you do for work? And I'll share. And then the amount of times that someone's like, oh, my husband, you know, just got released. Can you help me? Or like I was at a wedding one time and the guy was like, I, I did two years. Like, dude, I'm at a wedding. Don't even, I'm like a plus one at this wedding. So don't even know anybody there. And you know what I mean? And so, and people like, they would never have said that. I would never ask for help. But here I am saying I do this and like, 
basically showing that this is a safe place for me and a safe place for you. And it's way, way, way more people than you would think. So I think if we mm -hmm. can extend that grace even sometimes uh, and just say, like, if we sh can share that this is something we're open to helping with, the amount of people who then take you up on that is pretty astounding. Like I said, it's way more sometimes than we even realize mm -hmm. of, of how close it can hit. So I'm not, I know I did this guy I was talking about college. He played division one sports and he actually was there on his crutches because he just tore his knee recently, all these things. And he's like, yeah, I did two years. So do you got any help? You know, and it's, it's like things like that. You just don't like casual conversation at a wedding, but you would never know necessarily. Right. Unless you extend that. So I think just, yeah, like you said, being, making it a, a person thing and realizing that at the end of the day, these are people, right? These are people. And I kind of told my students that even, you know, we have to cover tough topics during the semester. So one of them being the death penalty. And, and that can be a tough, a tough conversation. And, and I, and I had them do a debate and pick what side they fall on, you know, and, I, and as um, in academics, I don't at all try to persuade them one way or another. Mm -hmm. I just say, you know, why do you, what do you think? Why do you feel that way? And then like really challenge yourself and understand why you feel the way you do. Is it because it's all you were told growing up? Is it because of the political party you associate with? Is it based on fact? Is it maybe a mix of some things? Like, why do you feel that way? Challenge your own self thinking that. But I do tell them, especially with things such as that, regardless of which side you fall, really keep in mind that these are people, right? At the end of the day, they're human beings, just like you and I. Mm -hmm. And regardless of where you fall or whatever your reasoning may be, make sure you are considering that component mm -hmm. and and the people who are putting them to death are people and all the sorts of things right every it's all people everybody involved in it, mm -hmm. it it um are humans so some people i don't even they just look at the issue they don't even think at all about who is involved in this who's impacted by this this is still a person i am talking about at the end of the day you know we are still talking about taking their life and wherever you fall for whatever reason i think you just have to consider that so uh, that's like just really things that, and I constantly am trying to share that. Cause like you said, making it a human thing is just essential. Mm -hmm. Human kindness goes so, so, so far. Like, and we all know that. Uh, but for some reason we only sometimes want to extend it to certain types of people or certain people who haven't made certain mistakes or, yeah. and, um, yeah, and I feel that it should be given to everybody, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but we, yeah. yeah, we hope yeah. at the yeah. neighbor's table yes. that we're creating literally tables of community I where we can it. sit together yeah. our perspectives gonna brush up against one another and be like i'm uncomfortable with that yeah. Yeah. but we can still engage it yes. and hopefully be led to a pathway that's increases our love of our neighbor uh, I love and that. our love of enemy you know um so we hope that that's the the type of community that we're building yeah. so yeah. Wonderful. Well, I love that. I love what you guys are doing too. It's, it's truly incredible. It's trying to shift that narrative. Yeah. It's a tough feat. So I commend you. <laughs> I commend you guys for sure. Is there anything else you want to share? Um, I don't, I'm trying to think. I don't think so. We covered a lot. Yeah. I guess just really thank you for having me today. It was so wonderful to share with you guys and have this conversation. I always say like, I think a huge component is advocacy and awareness. As we mentioned, the education component is big. The awareness component is huge. Sometimes people don't know what they don't know. And so I just love getting to share about it so that more people can learn about it. More people hopefully want to help with it and find different ways that, that um, suit them. In, in how they feel comfortable helping, you know, because there are so many, that's one good thing about being so many things that need help <laughs> is usually someone can find something where they're comfortable in helping in that, in that way. So um, yeah, just thank you for having me and, and giving me this platform to kind of share some information about it. Thanks, Maddie.
Thank Thanks, you guys. Abby, you're the best. You're awesome, sis. <laughs> Thank you both. You're right. wonderful.